wonderful to hear the buzz of fellowship as we return um, from our summer season. And I appreciate that um, there are a number who are um, just taking advantage of the way the week has fallen. And so some people are still away um, and some people are recovering from being away, uh, at least the journey of it. And so at this point, we as a church tend to see um, this time of the year, beginning of September, and the new academic year as a kind of um, a, a soft restart, a soft reboot as it relates to our year as a church. Um, last series we completed, Doctrine Series, um, was definitely a, a real blessing. And before we get into our new series, we're just going to take opportunity over the next few weeks to kind of have a bit of a refocus and a, and a bit of a reboot. And um, it's on my heart to do that in a particular way, with a particular focus. Um, let me make sure everything's on. Yeah, for those who don't know, my name's Ephraim. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's a pleasure to be sharing with you today. And <coughs> as individuals, we're in constant need of reminder. Um, we put down the remote control. We can't remember where we put it. We put down our keys. Um, we don't remember where we um, stored that piece of clothing that we really want to wear in the moment. We're always in constant need of reminders. And um, no less is true when it comes to the things of God. When we think about the parable of the sower, we see in the parable of the sower the fact that um, not only do we have our own inherent weaknesses, but we have an adversary who seeks to rob us of the word, who seeks to rob people of the word. And if we have unguarded hearts, even the word that is sown, um, we can be robbed of. And so it's important that we um, not only guard our hearts, but also do that in ways by revisiting God's word um, so as not to be neglectful of it. And um, <clears throat> they say that in strategic terms, um, organizations and companies and so on and so forth are supposed to always be restating the, the vision um, of the organization in ways that help to just crystallize it and help it to make sense in people's minds um, as we go through our lives seeking to fulfill it. And for us as a church, our vision is to be a healthy church um, that is equipped to disciple and faithful on mission, a healthy church. And at this point, we're going to focus just and drill down a little bit more in terms of what does it look like to be a healthy church? What does it look like to be a healthy church? I think of all of the points that are stated there, that's probably the one that's least obvious and, and most open to assumption and the one that we've had the most questions on. What does it mean to be a healthy church? So we'll drill down on that um, in, a, in a moment. And, you know, in, in terms of being equipped to disciple, um, our desire and our goal is to equip disciple-making disciples. So we're not just trying to equip disciples. Um, we're not just trying to make disciples. 
but we're trying to make disciple-making disciples. And hopefully you can see the difference between somebody who's merely a disciple and somebody who is a disciple-making disciple. And so my question and my challenge to you is, are you a disciple-making disciple? Are you a disciple? Now, that could be just full stop right there or question mark right there. But then if you can say yes, don't rest on your laurels. Don't feel sweet about that. Don't feel like, oh, I'm a disciple. Amen. Praise God. Wonderful. Rejoice. But actually, are you a disciple-making disciple? Because this is what we see in the Great Commission. Um, Go into all the world and make disciples of all peoples, teaching them to observe all that I have said. And so this this is the mandate for the Christian, for every Christian, that we would be disciple-making disciples. And maybe you feel hesitant, maybe you feel uncertain about what that looks like and actually your ability to do that. And that might be related to the lack of the first point being there may be some areas of ill health spiritually in your life and in my life in ways that affect us from being disciple-making disciples who are faithful on mission. So, some of you may recognize who this is. Um, at a certain period in her life. This is um, album cover. Um, which album? Go on, let's test it. Go on to the second here. Title? My Life. That's the radio presenter right there, radio DJ right there. My Life. Now, for me, I think that was probably her strongest album, at least in my opinion. You know, these things are just like people have their own views on that, you know what I mean? Um, I love that album, you know what I mean? And the, and the, the lead single from that album was called, I don't know if anyone knows. No? The, no, 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 no. Thank you very much, Asemi. All these music connoisseurs in the building. Be happy. All I really want is be happy. Uh, everybody wants to start worshipping now, right? <laughs> Sing along, crew, come alive now, yeah? <laughs> Classic tune and expressed sentiments that resonated with um, a whole myriad of people. It went to number two in the UK charts, number six on the US Billboard chart. Yeah, imagine that. It went to number two in the UK chart. And, um, yeah, the lead single, Be Happy, a sentiment that is, um, I guess, people relate to all over the world. 20 years later, there came another song. And this song went to number one in 30 countries. Song of similar sentiment. One word, happy, man like for real. Yep, and it was just an unexpected smash in 2014. It went to number one in about 30 countries. For real, happy. And, you know, it was one of those kind of infectious songs that 
you know, you, you, were, you were good, glad to hear initially. <laughs> and then it got to the point where we weren't so happy to be hearing happy. <laughs> Still happy to hear happy. And yet again, it is a sentiment um, that is related to by most people. Most people, when asked, what is their greatest aspiration in life? What do they want in life? They want to be happy. Some would say happy, healthy, and wealthy. And yet, you can just sum that up into happy. And so is there, is, uh, how does this relate to our relationship with God and our journey in Christ? Is there a sense in which actually this is a legitimate pursuit? Or is this something that God has no interest in towards us as his people? Being happy. And so we're going to take a look at the Beatitudes and the pursuit of kingdom happiness. This morning, um, Bertram, as he opened the service, just commented on the, the joy and happiness, that feeling of coming back from holiday, feeling refreshed, and, you know, there's challenges ahead, but you feel like you're kind of better suited to, to face them. They say that a, a change is as good as a rest, and so for us, it's been decorating and seeing a, a bit of a change in the house and feeling refreshed by that, and there's a, there's a sense of happiness, but what does that really mean? What does that really look like for the individual from God's perspective? And so we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes, which are found in Matthew chapter 5. Um, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12. Um, and over the next few weeks, we'll be breaking that down and considering how these speak to us, and particularly as it relates to our happiness. Um, I'm going to ask us to do something we don't often do. Um, in fact, I don't know if we have done it before. But um, I'm going to ask us to stand and to read these out loud together. I'm going to put them up on the screen so you can follow them and we can read from the same translation so that we're in sync. But I'm going to ask if we could all stand at the reading of God's Word. And if you would join me in reading these verses out loud together. Matthew chapter 5 from verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your faithfulness, and your loving kindness. We thank you, Lord, for your care towards us, your creation, and Lord, your particular care for your children who are in Christ. Lord, we do pray that we would just have a sense of the richness of your promise to those who are yours, and that, Lord, you would open the eyes of our hearts and understanding, that we would be filled with joy and happiness at your goodness towards us in Christ. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do feel free to take a seat. And thank you for reading with me. You might want to leave the guitar back on as well. It is on. Yeah, cool. So these verses find us at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I'm just speaking hesitantly at the moment. Don't want to kill anyone's ears. So we're at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Um, in Matthew, we read of John the Baptist, who has gone before Jesus, declaring the, the coming Lamb of God and the repentance needed to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself, um, just prior to this, had gone and declared also, preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew, beginning of the New Testament, and Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, and there's 400 years in between when there's a, a period of what's called silence, when God did not speak to the people through the prophets. And during that time of Christ, at his birth announcement, supernatural occurrences began to take place. Supernatural activity, angelic visitations, and all kinds of um, visions and um, revelations taking place, signs and miracles taking place. And so there was a sense in which something's happening. Something's happening. After this period of drought, spiritually speaking, after this period of silence, after this period of disconnect, all of a sudden, God feels very present. And people didn't understand because after 400 years, generations had passed. And the fact that John the Baptist had to come and start preaching repentance was because people had turned away from the old covenant. And from the law of Moses. In fact, the time then may have been quite like it is today in Israel. They say that 90% of Israeli Jews are non-religious. Not even non-Christian or just non-religious. 90%. 
when I first heard that statistic, it astounded me because I'm thinking, these are the people in the land where God manifested himself, where Jesus walked, where, I mean, and I don't mean Jesus walked Kanye, I mean actual Jesus walked. <laughs> See, I'm, some people, you know, I'm familiar, they might get the wrong idea. The Jesus of Scripture and the places and the sites all referenced in the Bible were there at hand. And yet you have a people who have such a heritage, a people who have such a history, who have such a testimony of God encountering their nation, working in their nation, being so far removed. 90% of Israeli Jews are non-religious. Amazes me. And yet such was the case at the time of Christ's coming. There had been no prophets, no word from God. And then John the Baptist prepared the way, make straight the paths of the king. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus has <laughs> duly been announced. He's on the scene. He's present. And in terms of his declaration of the kingdom of God being at hand, the kingdom of God being present and within your reach, that's what it means. There would have been some curiosity as to this kingdom. Is this like the, the kingdom that we, we, we once heard about? Is this the, like the kingdom that has been prophesied by the prophets? Is this the kingdom that is without sin? Maybe they had verses like this in mind from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. These were the promises of the kingdom of the prophets. And there's no doubt that the people were in a place of oppression. They were under Roman rule. They were being ruled by a, a, a tyrannous regime that prevented them from having the freedom and the liberty to live life in the way that they desired. And so this desire for freedom from oppression, the lifting up of the poor, the healing of the blind and the lame, is something that they would have related to as a very real need in their time. And so as Jesus begins his first sermon, now, if we take 
um, a sense of chronology, um, maybe the, the entrance in the, in the book of Luke where Jesus is in the synagogue and he quotes from the scroll of Isaiah from these verses and he closes the scroll and he sits down among them and them being astounded and astonished. Maybe that took place before this first public sermon. There are many who would say that it did and it was Jesus indicating him now stepping into the public fulfillment of his mission. But as we encounter these Beatitudes, we see that Jesus is definitely expounding. He's enlarging and explaining the fulfillment of these verses in Isaiah as it relates to the kingdom of God. In the Beatitudes, Jesus reveals the character and qualities of God's kingdom. In our life and times, it can be so hard to, to recognize, you know, what, what does God's kingdom really look like for us in our day and age? I remember on, on the youth camp um, during the summer, speaking with some young people and saying, what do you think Jesus would be like if he was walking on your blocks today? What do you think Jesus would be like if he was in your city, in your estate today? Do you think that he would still be the same person? Do you think that he'd still be able to live his life without sin? And, and be the person that he was 2,000 years ago? And a few of them were just like, Nah, I don't think so, you know. It's too deep out here. Too much temptations, too much trials, too much madness he'd have to deal with. Guys would move to him like he's moist. <laughs> I'm just quoting what they said to me. I'm speaking to young people, right? Soft, wet. Yeah, translation. And they didn't think that actually Jesus could still be true to himself in our life and times. And so far are we removed from the events of Scripture that it can seem as though the very realities of God's kingdom, can they really be real for us in our life and times? And so in the Beatitudes, we see that the Lord is Painting a picture of the kingdom of God and what it looks like for those who are in it. Now, as Jesus starts, he says, blessed. And we see this repeated eight times. Blessed. And that word blessed is directly related to where we get the title of this section of Scripture. Because the title of this section of Scripture is Beatitudes. And, it, and I had to kind of go back and check again. I'm like, how did we actually arrive at this title, Beatitudes? I know um, when in, in our house, when my kids were younger, they used to call it the Beatitudes. 
because it kind of looks like that. Um, I've heard it as I was growing up. The Beatitudes are called the Beatitudes because they're the better attitudes. Is that, is that how we arrive at that? No. The reason that it's called the Beatitudes because in Latin, the word beatus relates to blessed, which is the, the repeated refrain in the verses. And so Beatitudes equals blessings. And the word here used for blessed in the original, makairos, means happy. Fortunate, well-off. Some translations, I remember when um, the Amplified Version was first introduced. Some of you know about the Amplified Version if you're old school. And it was like having a commentary in the text. And they would put these brackets where they expand on words. And you really felt like you was getting deep. And so it would say, blessed, happy, and to be envied. Until you've kind of had to repeat the bracket like 10 times through. The, you're like, okay, I got it the first time. <laughs> Happy and to be envied, fortunate, well off. And this is in contrast to joy. So we often, and you know, I, I realize I'm just as guilty that as Christians, we will say, you know, joy is not happiness because. Happiness is dependent on happenings, but joy comes from the Spirit of the Lord. It's, it's, this, it's unconditional. It's a work of God's Spirit. But in this instance, happiness isn't being used as a synonym or in exchange for the word joy. It is being used as it relates to our happiness. The word is used a few times in Scripture. John 13, 14 to 17. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. John twenty twenty nine, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed or happy are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, the Bible speaks of the happiness of the believer. Again, in Revelation 14, verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, i.e., happy, are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Happy indeed. So happiness isn't something that is a foreign concept or something that the scripture doesn't speak of or even promise to those who believe. What does it mean to be happy? A feeling or showing of pleasure or contentment. And so, 
this isn't that merely a, a, a deep-seated joy that we're able to have even in the face of trials, even in the face of temptation, that sense of a well inside us that springs, uh, as, the, as the poets say, springs eternal, that sense of constantly knowing that God is with us and that he is good. But this is an outward expression, not just an inward one. It is an emotional experience. Now, for some people, that's a dirty word. It's become one because we've come from environments where emotions were esteemed as being sacred. And you come from an experience, if you're like myself, where actually em an emotional expression was equated to or equal to the moving of God's spirit in power. And so people would say it was a powerful service if there was a lot of emotional expression. And I got to a point where I was kind of like, hmm. So if I don't have emotional expression, does that mean I'm not experiencing the power of God? And often, I, I, I found myself witnessing and even experiencing myself e emotional expressions that were actually void of God's Spirit. So, it, it looked very bold and powerful to run laps around the church. It'd be a bit difficult in here, but to run laps around the church. I must say, I confess, confession is good for the soul. There was maybe once or twice <laughs> where I myself, in my church shoes, we weren't wearing trainers to church in them days. Done, done a couple laps. With a tambourine and a shout. And in that, I had to kind of sit down and question myself. Now, was that simply to look spiritual? Because I've I, I realized that there was a very real risk of it just being a show. And so, coming from an environment where those things were esteemed highly and valued most, I just became really disillusioned. And I was just like, you know what? I, I don't... I don't believe that it has to be an overt emotional experience for us to say that God has moved. <laughs> the irony was when I came to um, Calvary Chapel for the first time, um, so the church had not long been planted in Westminster um, by Pastor Brian, Brian Broderson. And, and we'd come from a, a, a point in time where the emotional expressions were on a whole nother level. And it was during a season that historically in recent church history, they called the Toronto Blessing. And so doing laps was tame. I'm absolutely serious. Doing laps was tame. Um, with, I mean, the order of the day more regularly was holy laughter. 
that was kind of like the regular, um, not even the extreme, the regular. You, you, you'd be falling out laughing consistently and continuously for no apparent reason and for prolonged periods, even whilst not just the singing is going on, but the preaching is going on, whatever. And it was just regarded as, you know, this is a great move of God. And I sat down and I was just like, Lord, I'm trying to see from your word how this matches up. And what I do see from your word is that people who pursue happenings, miracles, in Second Thessalonians, it says that they're going to be easily deceived because they love not the truth. But they were pursuing supernatural signs. And because they did not love the truth, they were given over to deception. And I was just like, Lord, I don't feel comfortable with this. And um, in my experience and in my church experience at that time, you know, the laughing was the regular thing. But there were even more extreme things being done in the name of this move of God. To the point where there was one place where they were issuing nappies. I don't know how that works, but it was supposed to be associated with the move of God. I mean, listen, if things, you, can, you can read books about this stuff. You can read books about this stuff. People have written it about it in hindsight. Um, and so, being in a a, a Christian community where this type of thing was embraced, I just kind of went to the other extreme. And when I first went to Calvary and I sat down and I was just like, cool, is this it? It was very calm. And it was, and I mean, even the, the, the songs was, I mean, you know, sometimes we have a guitar up here and so on. It's not because it, that's the ideal. It's just because that's how it is. That's what we have to work with. But when I first went to Calvary, it was one man and his guitar the whole time because that's how they liked it. That, that California beach, sand in your toes type of style. Man was singing them hippie style songs. And that wasn't what I was used to. I mean, if there was one thing that I appreciated in my church experience, it was the music. I was a drummer. <laughs> Amen. Come on now. I was a drummer. I was a singer. And I was on, listen, music for the Lord. And so, that was an anticlimax for me, to sit down and see my man with his guitar. Abraham, Father. Just like, and you know what? When I tell you, first few weeks, couldn't stop crying. Couldn't, I mean, the Lord moved in my heart and my life. And it wasn't, Boasty and open and showy and loud and it was deep and it was powerful. And I sat down listening to the words of these songs. All who are weary and weighed down. And I would cry to the eye water. <laughs> and over the years, I recognized there was a point at which we kind of was, was probably guilty of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as the saying goes, and not appreciating the good from our past experiences. You know, you say, they say you've got to kind of separate the sense from the nonsense. You've got to kind of take the, take the bones out of the fish, as it were. 
And there was much good in my, my previous church experience. And so the Lord had to rebuke me for being a hater. Don't call un unclean what I've cleansed. There's some things that are unclean, but don't write everything off. And so we're still on that journey of trying to find balance in that regard. But one of the things that definitely went out the window was the notion of emotional experience. And yet happiness is an, an emotional experience that is something that comes from God. You know, emotions are given by God. Often we use it in a really derogatory sense. We talk about somebody being emotional, and we talk about that in a, in a derogatory sense. Oh, you know, they're just so emotional. They just speak from their emotions. They just act in their emotions. The reality is that we all have emotions. We say women are more emotional than men as a generalization. But how can they be more emotional than men when we all have emotions? We just use and experience them differently. But fundamentally, one of the things we learn is that emotions are a good servant, but a poor master. They're, furthermore, they're a terrible master. And we can't allow our emotions to rule us and to dictate to us how we live and the decisions we make and the way we respond to situations. Because we will find ourselves, and I mean, if you're like me, you have found yourself in all kinds of issues because you've allowed yourself to be ruled by your emotions. And so even in this, we see that there is a place for our emotions and for our happiness as an emotional experience. So what does that look like? For most people, this is the reality of what it means to be happy. If every circumstance meets my desires and expectations, this is what most people would suggest it is to be happy. I'm happy when everything goes my way. I'm happy when everything is how I like it. And so... When people are saying, I just want to be happy, what they're saying is, I just want a life my way. Is that the kind of happiness that the scripture speaks about when it says, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Is that the type of happiness that we're to aspire to as Christians? Now, this is a, this is a crucial question, you know. And I've had a few, quick, few conversations within the past two, even three weeks, where people have struggled with this issue, struggled with concern as to whether or not God cares about their happiness. One individual said that I, Ephraim, had said something to them in such a way that was pivotal for them in their life and relationship with God. Now, I, I heard that and I thought to myself, 
you know them emojis with the blue heads? <laughs> and uh, like, Lord of mercy. <laughs> Pressure. All right, then. And they said that they needed to talk to me about it because it's, something that's, it's, it's bothered them since. And this person hasn't been walking with the Lord. And I'm just like, okay, maybe I need to get ready to take back some talk right now. And they said, you know what? When you said to me that God is not concerned about my happiness, that you don't know what that meant to me at the time. So I sat down racking my brain thinking, did I actually say that? Jeez, I'm bread. That was a bit cold. So I, I, even, I, said, I even asked, I said, did I, you, sh you sure I didn't say God, God isn't primarily concerned? <laughs> <laughs> I want the modifier in there. Like, is, and it was, you know what? I didn't hear primarily. And I'm like, oh, Lord of mercy. So thankfully he was like, you know what? Can you, can you explain to me what you meant? And I was grateful to the Lord that I got the second bite of the cherry. But this is a pivotal issue because the reality is that we would love it in life if life was to go our way all the time. And for some people, that's what we come to God for because God is all-powerful and God loves me. And so that means that God is going to give me my way. And if I do whatever is necessary to please him, to not block my blessing, to be under the spout as he pours it out, whatever it is that I need to do, as long as I do that, I'm going to get it my way. So I said to the individual, I said, look, God is not concerned with your happiness in as much as he's primarily concerned with your holiness. God is first concerned with your holiness. Happiness comes as a byproduct of that. You see, if we are to say that to be happy, and if God is intending that this is the definition of happiness, then this creates a number of problems. First of all, can this work in practice? If I have everything my way all the time in order for me to be happy and you have everything your way all the time in order for you to be happy, isn't there a potential that at some point our happiness is going to conflict? Because what makes you happy is going to make me unhappy. True or false? At some point, as they say, one man's meat is a vegan man's poison. <laughs> I remixed the saying, didn't it? Because <laughs> it's the times we're living in. <laughs> they say one man's meat is another man's poison. Amen? So, just contextualize it. <laughs> and so, what's good for me might not be good for you. And so as I sat down with this individual, I said, look, if it was all about our happiness, how would that even work on a logical level? I said, imagine if, extreme scenario, 
I, like certain individuals, felt I was happy having relations with children. Who would, if, if that makes me happy, who are you to question that if it's all about our happiness? See, from a moral point of view, we begin to be like, you know what, that's a madness. That can't work. There are certain times when somebody has to be unhappy in order for things to be right. And so, this notion of actually, we can all just be happy. Can't we all just get along? It, does, it doesn't work its way out in reality, in practice. Because we can't all just get along. We can't all just be happy because we can't all have it our own way all the time. So, on a human level, it don't work. But on a, on a divine level, if I have every one of my desires and expectations met all of the time, then that surely would make me God. There is only one who, to whom that kind of um, expectation ought to be fulfilled. The only one who deserves to have every expectation and desire fulfilled in every circumstance is God. So, newsflash. When the Bible talks about our happiness, it isn't talking about us being happy all the time. And it takes a mature individual in Christ to recognize there are times when I will be unhappy and it is God's will. It's God's will. It's God's will. God's will for us to be unhappy in certain instances. And you know, some of us, we get all high and mighty when our expectations are not met. How, how, how dare they? How could they? Don't they know how unhappy that makes me? Like Jesus died and left you God. There are certain times when it's God's will for us to be unhappy. It's like, suck it up. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. If you need to count to ten, do that. But just accept it. And you know what? The funny thing is, when we learn to accept these things, we actually become happier. We don't walk around with resentment, bad mind, and bitterness. We just realize, you know what? It didn't go my way. God, you're in control. You're sovereign. It's all about you. A verse that, for me, is just like foundational, core. Everyone should know this by memory, what it says and where it is. Romans 11.36. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory, not me. Not me. Lord, how comes you're not making me happy? How comes this person's talking my name again? How comes this person's upsetting me again? How comes this person's violating my, my expectations again? How comes this person's not fulfilling my desire again? How comes my glory is not being fulfilled? And God says, hmm, excuse me? 
all glory is to God. And yet, we so often want to glory. We, we, <coughs> it's like we're happy to give God glory as long as we get our part. We're happy to give God glory as, we, as long as we get our share. You know them ones when you was at school, right, and you had a packet of crisps, and someone said, let me have one. You said, I'll save you some. <laughs> that was me all day. So, uh, that was on the good day. On the bad day, I'm breathing on it. <laughs> you know them, you remember? <laughs> I ain't giving you none. But on a good day, I'll save you some, because I was going to make sure I get my portion first. And that's how we want to be with God. It's like, God, I'm happy to give you the leftovers of glory that I don't need. God's like, no, 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 no. All glory belongs to me. Don't play with me. I am God Almighty. All glory belongs to me. First and foremost, it's mine. And whatever you get from me, you get from me. And be content in that. And the reason that becomes a challenge for us and that becomes such a problem for us because it causes us to question whether or not God is good. That's what we're saying. Lord, are you really concerned about my happiness? Are you really good? The Bible says in, in Hebrews chapter 11, those who come to God must believe that he is first and foremost. And then they must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is a rewarder. God is good. God is good. And there is no experience that is bad, that is challenging, that is difficult, that is tra traumatic, that changes that. Whatever we go through, it doesn't change the fact that God is good. But it tests our faith. Trying of our faith works patience. And faith that ain't fried ain't tried. Serious. It has to be tested. And when it's tested, it feels testing. It's not like walking into your theory test and you've, you know, you've revised everything and you, you've used all of the, the DVLA um, booklets and everything and you go in and you just ace it one time. No, no that, that weren't no challenge, that weren't hard, that weren't a test. Nah. This is like that A-level exam that you've been dreading. Yeah, calculus. And all that, what? And you've been dreading. And, and that's where uh, the genuineness of our faith is revealed and demonstrated. <laughs> that's where the genuineness of our faith is revealed and demonstrated. When we trust God in the tough times. When things are not going our way. When things are not as we would desire. And yet, we, it's not even just... Lord, I trust you because I know you're going to change it and make it all better for me now. It's, Lord, despite what I'm going through, I trust that you're good and you're in control. And even if the situation is not resolved, even if the situation in this instance...
doesn't work out the way that I want, I know that you are using it for good in my life. And so happiness is not about every circumstance meeting our desire and expectations. Unhappiness is not ungodly because we are not God. And so we must ex expect and accept that we will experience unhappiness, but that doesn't even mean that God doesn't want us to be happy. As Jesus came to declare the kingdom, his first sermon, known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through to 7, Jesus breaks down the, the picture of the, he starts with these beatitudes and he says, happy. And in the brokenness of life, it's a message that we need to hear. In, in, the, in, the, in this fallen world, when actually, in reality, we probably experience more unhappiness than we do happiness on a scale. Some people have a happy disposition and we're quite easy going and we go through life and it's cool. But it's not like we're feeling on top of the world every day. We need to have that promise in mind that if God is concerned for our happiness in Christ Jesus. The scripture says of Jesus in Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was ahead of him, the joy that was to come soon, Jesus despised the shame and he suffered the pain and he endured the cross. Jesus went through unhappiness in order that his true happiness would be fulfilled. And you see, when God speaks about our happiness, we'll see as we unpack these um, beatitudes that there is a sense in which every single word of God is true. <laughs> I mean... If we believe God to be God, then his word must be true. Every single word of God is true. And if we don't make the mistake of assuming that his word is going to be fulfilled completely and fully right now, we will press on. The Bible says of Abraham that he, did, he died not seeing the fulfillment of the promise, but he died in faith. He died believing that God was going to fulfill his promise to him. And he's called the father of faith. And he's, Abraham is held up as the, the archetype that we all look up to. And God promised him that your seed would be like the stars and like the sand. And, and Abraham didn't see that. But he died believing that God was true to himself and he would fulfill his promise. And God will fulfill his promise to you. You will be eternally happy. You will be eternally joyous. You will be eternally fulfilled. There is a point at which in every circumstance, your every desire and expectation will be fulfilled. 
in the new heaven and in the new earth. In the new heaven and in the new earth. And this is um, what some people call delayed gratification. That, that sense of, I've got to wait for it to come. And some of us are kind of impatient, right? In fact, I know a lot of us, <laughs> most of us. And there's a lot of us who are impatient. I include myself in that because I can be. And so the, the whole kind of waiting part and not getting it now can be a real trial in itself. But again, this is where we submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God and we recognize our place before him. It, you know, we have to know our place. And that sounds, again, it sounds like so cold and it sounds like, you know, it's like we don't even say that to children anymore. Know your place. Be seen or not heard. Because we've kind of grown in our appreciation for child development and so on and so forth. But we're not, we're not comparing categories. God is in no category. There is no category within which to put him. He's beyond categorization. And the more we recognize that, the more we meditate on that and appreciate that God, <laughs> God is God. What is it they say? God is God all by himself. He don't need nobody else. When we actually begin to, to live and breathe the reality of that, the meaning of submission, the submitting of our desires, the submission of our expectations, the submission of our will, the submission of what we want, makes more sense. It's still a challenge, but it makes more sense. We become more willing to do that. As I spoke with somebody else about this issue of happiness and the challenge of that within their marriage, they recognize that the issue isn't really them submitting to God as such, at least as in the way that they saw it. The issue was, I don't have any feelings. I don't have the desire. I don't have the want for this relationship. And their, their, their kind of conclusion, if you like, was, I don't have the want for this relationship, and so this relationship does no longer makes any sense. And on a level, some might think, well, you know what? There's no point forcing somebody to do what they don't want to do. People are going to do what they want. But in Christ, that's not the response. In Christ, the response is, if I'm saying that I'm under God and seeking his pleasure, then I'm saying, Lord, I don't want this. I'm not going to front. I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to say, Lord, I don't want this, but my heart's not right. Change my heart. And cause me to want what you want. 
That's the prayer. The, the prayer's not even, Lord, change the relationship. Make my husband better. Make my wife better. Make it them fulfill my desires and expectations in every circumstance. That's not the prayer. The prayer is, Lord, cause my heart to want what you want. Because then we'll be able to function in ways that are not only pleasing to him, but are also better for us. God is good. God don't need our obedience. God don't need our worship. God don't need our submission. God don't need nothing from us. Self-existent. I mean, people say, this is an interesting one. Time, man. Cheese and bread. People say, you know, God, God created people because he, he needed our love. Because God is relational. And, and God needs our love. And so God created humans to have a relationship with him and to share in love in order that he might experience love and they might experience his love. That's not, that's not true. That's not true. I'm just... It's not true. God don't need our love. God never needed our love. Furthermore, the, the, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son and the Father, and the Father loves the Spirit and the Son, and they, they enjoy in, inter-Trinitarian love. They're not lacking anything. God created humans out of the goodness of his good pleasure. That he might lavish us with his love. Not because he needs our love. That we might know his love and be to the praise of his glorious grace. I mean, God, you're so good that you would make me to be able to have your love. Wow. That's a madness. You're too good, Lord. And so when we keep that in perspective and recognize at the end of the day, God is great. And we exist for him. But God is not just great, he is good. We can't separate the two. Because as soon as we separate the two, we, we, it, it, it all goes south. Everybody has a Job moment in their life. When the reality of God's sovereignty and God's goodness becomes tested in our eyes. Everyone has a Job moment. And it comes to us in different ways. But fundamentally, you could put it into two categories. Something we want that we can't have, like the fruit in the garden. We want to have better health. We want to have, a, we want to be married. Whatever the, whatever the want is, we want more money. We want to live in a better house. We, we want to be a better person. And we just can't have it. And we're finding that it's out of our reach, evidently so. And maybe we can't have it because simply God said you can't have it. Or it's just beyond our reach in terms of being able to experience it. And it gets to the point where we want it so bad, we are prepared to forsake God for it. Lord, she's not a, she's not a believer. But, you know what? We, we, we connect so well. We have such an understanding of one another. 
Job moment. When what we want is tested, do we want what we want more than we want what God wants? Something we don't want that we can't get rid of. We've got a health issue. And it seems like, God, can't you hear me? Like, how long do I have to? We lose a loved one and we want them back and we can't have them back. And we begin to resent God. God, it's your fault. You, you, they, they didn't have to die. You could have. We have those Job moments. Are we going to trust that? You know what? God is great. But he's also good. God does whatever he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with who he wants. And that is his right and prerogative as our creator. And yet we are able to trust that in that he is good and he is working it together for our good. And so, let us look at Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you see that everlasting sense there, that Jesus went to the cross. He experienced the height of unhappiness for us. And he had no reason to other than for our salvation. He endured the cross. And he despised the shame of it. And yet still, we recognize that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Where we, through faith in him, are seated with him. And we have the expectation that you know what? It's going to be all right. I remember when Sounds of Blackness re released that tune. Everything is going to be all right. You might feel a little pain sometimes. Everything is going to be all I just butchered the song. But it was a song that I remember that I, I struggled with it at one point because I was like, you know what? They're just misrepresenting the, the gospel, man. Everything ain't going to be all right. Like, the Bible promises that as believers in this life, we must suffer persecution. That don't sound like everything's going to be all right. But in an ultimate sense, everything is going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Just trust God and let him do what he's doing as he holds on to you. People say, hold on to God. We, we don't even have the, the, the power, the ability to hold on to God. Just rejoice in the fact that God is holding on to you if you are in Christ. And continue to just keep your eyes on Jesus. Because God was faithful to raise him from the dead. As he is faithful to do the same for us also. So that was our introduction to the Beatitudes. And um, be encouraged. That God is concerned for your happiness in the context of Christ. And we'll see next time just how that looks practically. Because these are very practical sayings. Very practical declarations that we're able to take hope and happiness from. 
I'm going to um, invite the guys to come back and um, I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me as we pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Ah, Lord, sometimes life is hard, and oftentimes we are unhappy. And Lord, it's a relief to know that actually, that's not outside of your plan and purpose for us. Sometimes it can be stressful just not getting things our way. And it is a stress reliever, Lord, to know that we don't have to have it our way. It's okay. And that, Lord, as you allow us to go through these, as you ordain challenges and tests and trials for us, you do so in order that we might be more like Jesus. And that in being like Jesus, we would be, be, be prepared and be willing to accept unhappiness as it relates to your greater glory and our greater good in the long run. Lord, we just, it's hard to see sometimes, and we ask for your grace. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your forgiveness, where we have dared to big up ourselves over you, dared to even want to demand from you our own way. Because in our minds, our happiness is the paramount thing. Lord, your happiness is the paramount thing. And yet your happiness, in your happiness, we all find true happiness. And so, Lord, bless us. Continue to help and strengthen us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.